0: Of a study on Revelation, we think of you know, the, the four horsemen and Armageddon and uh, the, all the wild beasts that we see and uh, the trumpets and the Antichrist and all these kind of things. Uh, and because we believe that the book of Revelation is written for us today, and it is written for us today, just like the rest of Scripture is written for us today. Um, it is written for us today And the fact that there is a, a prophetic theme that runs for it and runs through it. But we, we need to just keep in mind that before it was God's Word for us, it was written originally to these seven churches. And they had to make sense of the book. And it had to apply to them in, in some way. We, now, we want to jump usually to the, the sixth chapter of Revelation and get right into the judgments and, and when is this going to happen and what does it mean and what does it mean for me and is the world coming to an end tomorrow? And I would suggest that before we get there, Jesus was pretty good in the way he laid out the book. We need to deal with those first few chapters. Because if, according to those chapters, we can ask, yeah, but what do these mean? And how should I apply these? And and will my world of effectiveness come to an end soon? If, If we ask those questions and we come to answers, then I think our understanding, our clarity of the rest of the book... It would come a lot quicker. And so we've been looking at these seven churches of Revelation. We started off chapter one. It's a good place to start, right? Where Jesus starts off all of chapter one. Really, it's a picture of who he is. That's a good way to start life, isn't it? Anything you're doing, a new startup, that's okay. Focus on who Jesus really is. It's a good way to start. And then he goes through in chapters two and three. And Jesus had written little uh, evaluative memos. Each of these seven churches. Now, I was always told growing up that, you know, experience is the best teacher. But, Mark, if you can learn by someone else's experience, you're better off. Well, Jesus hadn't written us a memo yet. So we can look here and say, OK, what does he really look for in his church? What doesn't he like in his church? And if we're wise, we can start making shifts in our own heart. Don't necessarily be looking to somebody else and that organization and that board over there. It's easy to go that route. But since we are the church, let's focus in on who we are. Is this me or is this not? We looked at the church of Ephesus. We talked about how Ephesus was the the largest city in Asia Minor. And the church in Ephesus was really, at this point in history, the flagship church of Christendom in all of the world. This was the place. I mean, they got run out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so Ephesus basically becomes the headquarters of Christianity. It was it was a great place. Jesus looked at the church, he said, You guys are nailing it. Man, you're so entombed with with my word. You're not letting anything happen, anything slide through. But then Jesus says, However, the things you used to do at first, you know, you used to start you start off with this context of love, that's gone. And so the very first thing that Jesus Jesus directs or addresses in his church is the issue of legalism. Now, I'm not going to ask you all how many of you all have spent time in a legalistic church. But it's obvious to us that this is a huge issue in the church, in evangelical circles. Legalism. Jesus directs it right on the front end. If you lose your love, you're going to lose your light. We then looked at the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was kind of the the French Riviera of Asia Minor. Very beautiful place. It was the capital of emperor worship. Lots of persecution. That church was under it in major ways. And Jesus lets us know. As he let them know. A problem with persecution is you can run. And you can run away from me. And if the church is going to make it. If you're going to make it. You have to persevere. And we know. Because we've all. Face persecution of some sort for our faith when it's just easier to be quiet and not do what we know we're supposed to do to back off of our faith because of persecution. Then we looked at last week the church at Pergamum, which Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor. It was Rome's headquarters east of the Aegean Sea for all of their, their, their capital of uh, fundraising and their tax gathering and their their uh, military ventures. They all were based out of Pergamum. Uh, we were told there, and it was you know it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how how applicable God's word is for us today? Because Pergamum was the first liberals. These are the guys that had a big tent theology. Man, everything is okay. Come on underneath our, our wing, everything will be all right. And so they were accepting of everything, and they had lots of love, but they had very little truth. And Jesus says, "Listen, you, you needed the love, but but you have doctrinal diversity destroys. Don't go down that road." And today we look at the church of Thyatira. Interesting place, Thyatira. If you've got your Bibles, if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, I'm not going to ask you why not. But uh, uh, you need to bring your Bibles. You need to see it in your word. You need to write notes. They had a phrase when I was at Moody, wear out your Bible at Moody. Let me encourage you to wear this thing out. Not by making it a doorstop, but just really uh, spending time in it. Uh, church at Thyatira. So it starts off, let's, let's get right into it. Verse 18. It says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. By the way, let me just say this on a kind of a parenthetical note. All of these, you notice, are written to the angel of the church of this, that, or the other thing. Um, really, the angel could be a you know guardian angel for each church could have such a thing. Uh, commentators are all over the map on this one. The word means messenger, so it's a possibility that what, what he's doing is he's writing to the, the elders, the, the uh, senior elder at each of these churches. It's a possibility that there was just a runner between the churches, and this is who he's addressing as well. But either way, it's got to get to, to the church. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished Bronze, Thyatira, interesting stuff. Notice verse 19 when he says, I know your deeds. He knows their name. He knows their deeds, your love. He knows your love. He knows their faith. He knows their service. He knows their perseverance. And that you're now doing more than you did at first. Remember Ephesus? He said, you're not doing what you used to do. Those things you started to do and what you did at first, you're not doing them anymore. He's like the opposite of these guys. He says, not only are you doing them, they're growing I know these things you're doing. This is a great uh, verse in the, in the message uh, translation or paraphrase. Uh, Peterson says, he's, when he's paraphrasing this, he says, Jesus is looking at this saying, I know your deeds. And Impressive. Very impressive. Now that's, I think that's the idea. Because each of these things can be downsides in each of the previous churches. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're nailing it here. Good job. You're growing. And remember, like we mentioned last week, that sometimes the danger is when we're growing in one area, we think everything is good. And Jesus loves us too much to just let us be thinking that. He says, I'm glad you're doing it here. Great. However, uh, Thyatira, let's back up and talk about Thyatira for a moment. Because perhaps that's not a household word in your, your home, Thyatira. You've never heard of this place before, and there's good reason. Because while Ephesus was the largest city, and while Smyrna was the French Riviera, and while Pergamum was the capital, Thyatira was pretty much a throwaway town. It was just an insignificant place. No, Thyatira was a military outpost. And its only purpose, this was was the purpose of Thyatira. If someone was going to attack the capital, Pergamum, they would come through the main road, and and Thyatira's job, if that was, they were to see an army coming towards Pergamum to take out the capital, the Washington, D.C., their job was to get in the way and slow the, the the coming enemy down just long enough for Pergamum to close their doors and get things together and be prepared. It was a suicide type of town. It was their, it was their mission. It was their cast, but it was what they were about. Now, what's, what's significant for me with this church is though this could be the most insignificant church, the smallest church. Jesus gives you more words for this church than any other church. More than Ephesus, more than capital Pergamum, more than, more than Philadelphia didn't have anything wrong with that church. He has a lot of words for this church. That tells me a couple of things. Things we think are insignificant are not insignificant to Jesus. Now let's face it. We're not Saddleback. I'm not Rick Warren. We're not Bethlehem Baptist. I'm not John Piper. We're not Mars Hill, and I'm Mark Driscoll. You know, we're 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 not Grace Community Church, and I'm John MacArthur. And we might look at this and go, you know what? We are. Who's ever even heard of, of a very? And first we might look at ourselves and say, you know what? My job is kind of a useless job in life. I mean, really, what does it matter? I dig holes, I fill them in again, nobody really knows, nobody really cares. What I do in life is tedious and mundane, it's insignificant. The problem with this, I mean, first of all, Jesus would say, no, no, I care and it's not. But beyond that, sometimes we think because it's insignificant, I really don't have to give it my all. Just kind of breeze through and good enough will work. And we need to know, students, in school, where you're at. Uh, you might feel insignificant, incredibly significant. Your job is to give the absolute best you can. Let your light burn as bright as it can possibly burn. Number one goal is not to have fun or get straight A's or whatever else. Good things. But your number one goal is to let your light burn bright. College students, your number one goal isn't to get through so I can start my life. That's a good thing. You need to do that. But your number one goal there... Is to let your light burn as bright as possible in the workforce, in your neighborhood, wherever you are. Your number one goal. I know you might think this is so insignificant. Jesus says your number one job. That's why he's addressing these guys as he is. Is to let your light burn as bright as it can. Do the best you can with what you got. It's a Thyatira uh, situation. Now, one of the things that was going on in Thyatira, archaeologists tell us. Their one claim to fame is that they had a lot of... Trade guilds there. They were like a, a production mecca. They were a blue collar town. Now, the trade, mill, trade guilds were kind of like unions, and they had one for wool working. A trade guild union and they had a bronze smithing trade union and they had a pottery trade union and a baker's trade union and a dye trade union because they coming out with purple dye was a, a, a major production there in Thyatira. Lots of, of trade unions. Matter of fact, more trade unions than any other town that we've been able to ascertain uh, here in Thyatira. And if you are a Christian in Thyatira, you are a part of one of these one of these one of these trade guilds. You cannot not be if you are working. Now, these, these trade guilds, these, these unions slash families slash religion, it's, it's huge because if you were in the union, you know if you're in the union, you go to the union meetings. And these, these guild meetings, they certainly had a time of worshipping their patron god because every guild had a, a god. And you didn't want to offend him, and you wanted him to smile on your business, and you wanted his help, and so they had sacrifices to him. And then halfway down through the meeting, they would include immorality, and it wasn't that the party just got out of hand, this was on the schedule. And the, the, these folk recognized, keeping in mind that there weren't a lot of atheists. Everything was very religious. That was their mindset. Very religious. Please the gods and appease the gods. And so that worked into every aspect of their life and their sexuality. That was part of the deal. That was just the way, the way it was. That was going on. Now, here's the deal. Here's the problem. You're in Thyatira, right? And you're in a, a, a guild, some trade guild. You've been in it for a long time. Your dad was in it. Your granddad was in it. It's just who you are. And all of a sudden, you come to know Christ. Well, do you still go to the trade guild meetings? You drop, you know, you don't just drop the union. You get in trouble when you do that. And if, in fact, that's what you decide to do, that's economic suicide. Nobody's stopping by your shop anymore. You're blacklisted. No one's selling you the stuff you need for your shop to work anymore. On top of that, you drop, you drop the guild. And let's just say the economy goes south and your, your business, your, your industry uh, starts to fall. What are all the other guys in your industry? What do you think they're thinking? They're blaming you. You've offended the God and now he's ticked off at all of us. And so they have to appease this God and make sure that, that he recognizes that they're serious. So you and your family's lives are in danger. So you're a Christian hanging out in Thyatira. What do you do? That's a crazy thing. Well, somebody in the church of Thyatira, it seems, and keep in mind, the church is 40 to 60 people. Guess what we're talking. There was a gal. She was an influencer. She was a, a, a godly sort of gal, it seems. It seemed, appearance. She said, listen, I've been praying about this. God has spoken to me about this, and I just want you to know it's okay to stay in the guilds. It's okay to be in it 100%. Let's go for it. After all, if we don't, if we drop these things, how are we going to influence these people? We got to let's move it forward. Well, if you can imagine, there were some folk in the Church of Thyatira who were doing. Well, that's fantastic. All right, good. I was hoping it would go that way. That would work. They weren't embracing this solution because it was the right one necessarily, but it's because it's the one they wanted to be the right one. Because the real solution was just going to be too, too costly. That's what's going on. Look at the the, the scripture. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching and she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, this gal is referred to as Jezebel. Most probably that wasn't her name. It would be uh, akin, again, if you follow the context of Revelation, it would be akin to myself going home. And my boy says, hey, Dad, let me show you what I can do on the computer. And he just makes this thing do somersaults. And I look at him and I say, well, all right, Bill Gates, you're nailing it. My kid's name is not Bill Gates. But we all know that this is just somebody who's computer savvy. You're out driving around with somebody and you're going to dinner and they see a stray cat on the side of the road and they make you stop the car and they get out and they take this thing and they want to feed it and drink it water and bring it to the vet and you're looking up you say, listen, Dr. Doolittle, for crying aloud, we've got things to do. Forget the lousy cat. And that's... The person's name is not Dr. Doolittle. We know it's just a name that everybody would understand in our culture that's someone who's interested in, in animals. Jesus here says this person is Jezebel. Now, notice she was referred to as a prophetess. She was influential in the church. She had the ear and the loyalty of many folk in the church. She was, she was a, a person whose reputation was one who's listening to God, who's walking close. Now, let me just kind of hit the pause button for a second and, and remind us this is important because these folk were listening to A key person in the church. Now, what that tells me, what that tells you is that your job is not to listen to or to follow anyway. Benny Hinn or Marilyn Hickey or or Paul Crouch. Your job is not to follow John Ortberg or John Calvin or John MacArthur. Your job is not to follow Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or Anne Graham Watts. Your job is not to follow R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer or John Piper. Your job is not to follow Linda Pafko or Jim McDonald or Rob Pryor or Mark Harris. Your your job is to listen. they are teachers given to the church. And we watch their life. And if their life reflects Jesus, it gives them a little bit more credibility. So we listen. But we don't just take what they say because we're human. Everybody, we have, we can misinterpret. We can get it wrong. And so we need to stop and take what they say and look at Scripture. This is... Key verse, Acts 17, 11, we should all, everyone should have this memorized. What a great, great verse. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. These guys were questioning the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I know you're the Paul and all, but I just want to check the Bible just to make sure we're all right. And they're lauded for this. If these guys are considered noble because they challenged the Apostle Paul, I think that we're all going to be lauded if, in fact, we challenge the human teachers that we have today. It's real important. Guys going off to, to different churches, you listen to someone on the radio, you're reading somebody's book. Much of what they say may be great, may be good, but we have to stop and filter it through the Word of God. Don't just swallow hook, line, and sinker and follow. We've we got it. we got it. So that's kind of a some pause. It. Let's, let, let's keep going. Now, Okay. So, Jezebel, uh, she calls herself a prophetess by her teaching and misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, if you live, live in Thyatira, this is what you needed to do at your workplace. Let me ask you. We live in Thyatira to an extent. Uh, your workplace, where you're at, do they ever put you in a position? Do you ever feel like you're in a position where... You've got to compromise where you, you've got to promise more than what you know this product is going to deliver. You know that, but you've got, to, you've got to exaggerate its good points and kind of spin its bad points. And just you've got to promise things that you know aren't going to happen. You know, yes, it's within the realm of possibility that you might be able to have it delivered by that date. But, you know, probabilities it's not going to happen. But what do you say? Oh, yeah, not a problem. Yeah, we can do that. Just get the sale, Right. Or maybe in your position, we end up having to fudge numbers. I I had a a, uh, a friend, she was uh, a a nurse, and she told me, Gail in the the church worked with me with the youth group, but she had to change all these numbers and, and constantly put down different dates or times, I guess, that she gave out the medications. I wasn't sure exactly what it was about. But I asked her, I said, how do you square that with your commitment to Christ? How do you put that together? And... She popped on her lawyer hat, she said, listen, you don't understand my industry. And she went through, I got, you know, the mortgage, and I got the car, and I got this, got the other thing, and, and God would want me to supply for, for the, these things, wouldn't He? What kind of a testimony is it tonight? And if I say anything, I'm gonna throw everybody else on the show, on the staff under the bus, and I can't do that, and it's just what I have to do, and God's okay with it, and because I'm there, I still get a testimony of these people, and so it's a good thing. And you go, I, I, I don't know. What Jezebel's deal here, what the teaching is, is idolatry. Now, here's what idolatry is. Just a Simple definition of idolatry. Idolatry is putting things behind the steering wheel that don't have a license. Easy enough to remember. There are some good things, there are some great things that should be in the car, but they ought not to be behind the steering wheel. John, Tim Keller says that idolatry is making secondary things primary. It's, it's one of the things, one of the occupational hazards for our work is really an idol that we can bow to, that we can put behind the steering wheel that ought not to be there, is security. Because we want to take care of our family. And because we're afraid of retirement without anything. And and, and because we, we want to get that promotion. And, and because we, we know that, that we need finances to be able to live life. Now, I think that that is not a bad Fear, per se, it should be in the car. It makes us responsible. It helps us get up and go to work. We may not feel like it. But to put it behind the driver's, in the driver's seat, behind the steering wheel, it will lead you down roads you don't want to go if you allow security to drive your life. And another occupational hazard for our workplace is this idea of recognition. And maybe, I, I have not been a woman before, so I don't know, but I know for guys... Uh, our, our, our identity is often tied up in what we do. And the further you climb up the ladder, the more important you may feel, the more important the world may tell you are. Now, now, hear me, well, there's nothing wrong with believers being up the ladder. I think we need more up the ladder, providing that you don't knock people off on your way up. I think that that's important. But we just need to know that the further you go, the next rung you go up, there are more temptations. And the cost of following is a little bit greater now. ...than it was before. And sometimes if we allow... and Proverbs tells us a good name is important. We should do the work well because our name is attached to it. I'm there. But that's a good thing to have in the car. But don't put it behind the steering wheel... ...because when you allow recognition to steer, to drive... ...it's going to take you places you don't want to go. You'll find yourself doing things that you know... ...are against what God has called you to do. Another idol that we often worship in our workplace is efficiency... You know what? We're just movers and shakers. We need that sense of progress. And doggone it, these stupid politicians' laws and needless regulations are just slowing us down. And if we keep to them, our competition is going to pass us. And so we just have to blow them away and cover them up and just move ahead and do what we need to do to be efficient. It's, it's an idol. And, and what, what Jesus is saying is your workplace. There, there are idols there. That folk would tell you, you need to bow down to. Now, we need to go to work. But be conscious of that which are important. They can be in the car. But ask yourself, but do I have them behind the steering wheel? Are they driving me? Because if they are, you have bought into the teaching of Jezebel. And sometimes we think, well, you know, there's uh, not much loss with that. Maybe I'll get caught, maybe not. But if we could follow on in the text, we'll see that there's incredible loss with that. Let's look back into verse 18, though. It says these To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's bronze in a furnace. Now, just about every commentator I've read looks at this description of Jesus and says... What the author is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, is what he does throughout this section, but throughout the whole book. He talks about the teaching of Balaam. He doesn't explain it because he knows just mentioning Balaam is going to conjure up the story in people's minds. He talks about Jezebel. He doesn't have to explain all that. I wish we had time to look at that in First Kings. But he knows that that's going to conjure up the, the story of Jezebel in, in the Old Testament, what she was about. But, so what he does here is he, he uses... This phrase, Son of God, only time it appears in an old book. He, he uses these, these uh, phrases, blaze, eyes blazing like fire, feet like burnished bronze, or bronze in a furnace. And he's reminding them of another very significant picture in the Old Testament. One that actually, one of the author's favorite books that he quotes or refers to in here is the book of Daniel. And it's in Daniel chapter 3. We've, we've talked about this before. But what happens is in 605, Nebuchadnezzar wipes out Jerusalem. First time he wipes out Jerusalem. And he brings back to Babylon some of the best and brightest. His plan was that every conquered group that he, he took over, he took the best and the brightest back to Babylon. He's trying to assemble an all-star team there, the sharpest people in the world, to run his empire. So he brought back Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They're part of this thing. And Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are moving up the ladder. They are proving themselves, their skill, their ability. If you want something done, you give it to one of those guys because they will make sure it's done. It's done on time. It's done under budget. It's done better than anybody could imagine. Those are great guys and and their bosses are recognizing this. Now in time, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he's got all these conquered peoples all over Babylon and they all have different gods. And he needs to to bring some, some loyalty. He needs to make sure they're on the same page that he is on. So he erects a statue and he says... Okay, when the band goes off, everybody bows down. Just because he wants to make sure they're loyal to him. We know the story. Band goes off, and everybody bows down. They're all at work. Their boss said, bow down. But Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego don't bow down. And so they get called into the boss's office. You've been called into the boss's office? Not a good thing. But they're called into the boss's office. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Now... Nebuchadnezzar's talking. He says, when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipes and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is like a boss's complex, isn't it? I control your future. I don't want you to forget that. You do what I tell you to do or else you're done. That's where Nebuchadnezzar was. problem is, a lot of times we believe that. We say, Oh, yeah, I guess so. What God can... Well, I mean, i got a God now, but he really doesn't do stuff like that, so I, I don't know. Well, it was a rhetorical question, what God can, can save you, but Meshach, Sherek, and Abednego jump in. And they say, now that you, you put the question on the table, I want to tell you, King, yeah, we know somebody. We know a God that can do that. And so he says in verse 17, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve... Is able to save us from it. And he'll rescue us from your hand, O king. I mean, it's a piece of cake. Can God, our God save us from you? <laughs> yeah, of course he can. Well, it probably didn't make Nebuchadnezzar real happy. But then he goes, they go on and they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if this doesn't work to our favor and we're done here. You just need to know. We're not compromising. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego took Jesus to work with them. So the king, you know the story, gets real bent out of shape, throws them into the furnace. And while they're in the fiery furnace, verse I don't know if I've got this on the screen or not, but you listen, if you're, if, if, unless you're in Daniel 3 and verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. He's checking out the furnace those three guys have been thrown in. In amazement, then he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The phrase that is used in in, uh, Revelation 2, the son of the gods, with eyes blazing like in a fire, with feet burnished as in a furnace. And what Jesus is, is reminding us, listen, when you go through what you go through because you stand up for me at work, you've got to make sure I'm there with you. Now, I may use it to bring you home, but this life down here is just a precursor. It's just getting you ready. But I may turn things around. Sometimes we, we act in fear because we're sure how things are going to work out if we don't. But we really don't know how things are going to work out. I mean, if you follow the story here, Meshach, Sherrick, and Abednego get a raise out of this deal. And they get a promotion out of this deal. And the light that they were shedding in the office, you know what? It goes beyond. Because 500 years later, we've got some magi from the east, guys that were actually had worked in the same office that these guys had earlier, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And most Bible scholars trace those guys' path. Back to right here. Here's what the the light that they were supposed to be shedding went way out. In the 1930s, 40s, the church in Germany was uh, was a state-run church. Uh, So all your pastors were state employees. So it didn't matter if no one came to church, you still got paid. That worked out okay. Now, so they were there. So when, when Hitler became the chancellor... The, of course, the, the bureaucracy and the government uh, said, yes, uh, of course we're pledging our allegiance to, to uh, Hitler. Well, a- as time went on, and it became very obvious that Hitler's motivation was not altruistic, that uh, people were being hurt, there was inhumane treatment going on, the church swallowed hard, and there was some struggle on the front end, and there was some, some sh- staff shifts and those sort of things. But they came out saying... Not only do we tolerate this, we embrace it. And pastors, as good citizens, you need to turn into the state, any enemies of the state, these Jewish people. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany at this point, And he struggled with what to do here. Because all of his pastor friends were jumping on the political bandwagon. Hey, listen, man, these guys know better than we know. And, and we're really not at fault because we're not doing anything bad. And you know what? We just got to gotta trust and move ahead. And so he was at first, Bonhoeffer was, was was anti, going against Hitler. But as he watched what was happening to his Jewish friends, he shifted and he changed. And he, he said this. He said, silence in the face of evil is silent Excuse me. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Because of Bonhoeffer's stance, because he defied his bosses, as it were, because he was going to bring Jesus to work with him and be the pastor that he was supposed to be, be the light he was supposed to be, he ended up in Buchenwald concentration camp. April 9th, 1945, just 11 days before the Allies were to liberate the camp, he was hung. And then his body was literally burned. They tried to get rid of all the, the evidence. It doesn't always work when you're thrown in the fire, you come out. Sometimes you're in the fire and it really is your passageway to heaven. And I wish we could spend more time. But the uh, one of the criminals who was with... Um, Bonhoeffer, when he died, said, I had never seen anybody of all the years and all that what we've been through walk into their death with such peace and such assurance. Because Jesus himself promises when you walk through this, I'll walk through this furnace with you. I've been there before. I'm the king of the furnace. We can make it happen. Listen, at your work, is your perspective... Horizontal or is your perspective vertical? Young people, make a commitment now, boy. Make a commitment now that you're going to bring Jesus to work with you every single day. Because if you're making compromises for a minimum wage job, when when the cost gets really worthwhile, you think you're going to shift and change, you're not going to shift and change. If you're in the marketplace now and you know what you're having, it's just a different world from home and church, and you're you'd be ashamed if you knew if your kids knew what what you are and what you do, uh, maybe you need to say, Lord, I'm not. I'm going to heed your word here. I'm not going to follow. Because if we don't, then our lives, our church is nothing more than mortar and stone and a steeple and our effectiveness to the community is zero. Our light has gone out. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're you're, you're hitting everything that we're dealing with, everything we face. The, The things we think were just for them back then are for us today. And our desire, oh God, is to be your church here in Erie, Pennsylvania, to do what we've been called to do in a way that would please you. We want our light to burn as bright as possible, Lord. And all those things that we might even be involved in now, That would diminish that light. Oh Lord, would you convict us. God, would you give us the courage. May we be committed to bringing your son with us to work. In his name. Amen.